0: Father, we thank you for um, the life and breath that you have graciously given to us this morning, not just physically, but spiritually. Father, we thank you for wakening us up, um, for illuminating our hearts and minds and helping us to see the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that there are so many impediments to that, not only in our culture, but that reside deep within our souls, within our hearts, even now. So we pray as men that we'd lay this morning our idols at your feet, both things that are harmful to us, but also things that we honestly uh, would recognize are good, but that we worship as higher than you. Father, we pray for our discussion as we talk about Sunday morning worship, corporate worship, what it means to worship together as your church, as the body. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be open and honest about that. And then, Father, we do lift up... um, our brothers and sisters of the Southwest Church Plan Network, the work that you've called them to and extending your church to places where it does not exist. We pray, Father, for their meetings here. We pray, God, that this would be an encouragement to them as they meet with one another. Now, Father, we do lift our brothers to you, Jim and Cub. We pray, Father, that you would be so present with them in the midst of um, suffering, affliction, recovery. Father, we pray that you would heal them in Jesus' name. And then for us now, we pray that you'd be with us. Be with us. We pray that your word would do what you have appointed it to do, that it would um, pierce us through, that it would cut us uh, in a way that would then heal us, a way that it would restore us, a way that would then give us new eyes for the gospel in our life with Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. If I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you afterwards. Uh, We are going to be working our way through a sampling of Psalms this morning known as the Songs of Ascent. And so if you have your hand out there, get it out. You might want a Bible as well. Uh, we're going to be at a few more than what's just listed on your page, but this, for the most part, will cover we're going to spend most of our time this morning. To begin, I want to read a quote for you. I know it's kind of early, so we've got to kind of um, focus in to hear a long quote. But right around the time when I graduated from high school, I'd just become a believer after rejecting the church, and I'll talk more about that in just a second, after rejecting the church, rejecting Christianity. um, On my way to college, a book came out called Blue Like Jazz. Anybody ever read it? A few of us this morning, written by an author named Donald Miller. And I remember when it came out, uh, I... I honestly didn't know what the buzz was about until I read it. And I realized really the the basic reason why at least so many of my generation gravitated to it is we were all looking for a reason or a way to make Christianity cool, right? Is there a way that this could be somehow a little bit more winsome, a little bit more uh, accessible, um, and it's hilarious. It's a great book, um, a way that made Christianity not so stuffy, a way that um, you could really wrap your mind, especially for me, as a new believer going into college, trying to figure out how do I make sense of this, especially given the world that I live in. Now, fast forward almost 20 years uh, when Donald Miller first started writing. And now Donald Miller, uh, the author, uh, you know, he has written not only numerous books, but he has consulted presidents, right? He has done so many things. And he's got a blog that has a very wide following, And just this year, earlier this year in February, this is what he wrote. And it set off a firestorm, as you can imagine, Uh, most bloggers probably do, who have any kind of following at all, let alone an author like Donald Miller, uh, started an online controversy. What was so controversial? Well, let me read you what he said. He said, I have a confession. I don't connect with God by singing to him. Not at all. It's just that I don't experience that intimacy in a traditional worship service. In fact, I can count on one hand the number of sermons I actually remember. Okay, Anyone want to relate to him this morning? He says, in fact, to be brutally honest, I don't learn much about God hearing a sermon, and I don't connect with Him by singing songs to Him, so... And he just indicted all of us. Okay, he says so. Like most men, a traditional church service can be somewhat long and difficult to get through. All right, can anyone relate to that this morning? We want to go there. We kind of want to open up a can that perhaps as men we're not usually willing to talk about. And it's a simple question with a much more complicated answer. Do you like church? Do you like corporate worship on a Sunday morning? Do you sometimes feel like Donald Miller? Because he goes on. He says, so, do I attend church? Not often, to be honest. Like I said, it's not how I learn. So here you have a Christian author, Christian leader, who's admitting that he actually does not make it a practice in his Christian life to go to corporate worship. He does not actually go, as we'd call it, go to church. He doesn't do that. Why? Well, he says, well, I don't get a lot out of it. I don't get a lot of singing, and I don't get a lot out of the sermons, and so I just don't go. Now, when I first read this quote and read his article, at first I was struck by just how... um, honestly myopic it seemed or just how um, it's like really like typically when you read people's uh, reasons for not going to church they're a little bit more thoughtful than that I guess right it's people saying well look I I grew up with a lot of baggage and I've seen the hypocrisy of the church and I just can't stomach it right or I, I have these issues about a God who would claim to be gracious, and yet if you look through the Old Testament all the evil things he has done, I just can't do that. Or I've been let down so many times as I've pleaded with God to heal my wife, and yet he hasn't answered. And so I, I, I'm not just going to show up. It's none of those things. He says, well, I just don't like it. And I'm like, really? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized, you know what? I think Donald Miller's just being honest. He's willing to go to a place that most of us aren't willing to go. He's not going to hide behind any of these big reasons. He's used to say, I don't get a lot out of it. So the question we have to wrestle with us this morning as men, I want us to be honest, is do you like it? What does it do for you? What role does corporate worship play in your Christian life? And why does it matter? For me, I grew up in the Lutheran church, very small congregation, 100 people uh, out in McGregor, Texas. Okay, Our church is so old, we have a Texas historical marker on the outside, true story. Um, I hated it. I hated every second of it. I didn't get it. It seemed stuffy and archaic. I wanted nothing to do with it, and so I rejected it. Now, you could say that about a stuffy little Lutheran church, but then as I got older and I saw my friends going to the big Baptist church down in Waco, right? I didn't like that either. And so honestly, when I became a Christian, I still did not like attending corporate worship. And so do you know what I did? And this is such a uh, confession of my pride. I decided to go into ministry. You want to know why? Because I wanted to make it better. (laughs) Because I didn't like it. And so I picked up a guitar, and I p- learned the piano, and I wanted to make music better because, and we'll talk about this in a second, in my head, that's how you fixed it, right? I couldn't, do it, I couldn't deal with the music, so I want to make the music better. You see, I, I'm really no different than Donald Miller, and, and my guess is so many of us are really no different than him either. That all of us this morning probably have something that as we uh, attend corporate worship, some kind of baggage, some kind of thing that gets in the way of us experiencing the fullness of what God has for us. Now, recognize for some of you this morning, you may not worship uh, here. Some of you might not attend corporate worship at all. Perhaps you're not part of a church. We want to talk about that this morning, really in two ways. So we're going to look at what is known as the Song's of Ascents. The Songs of Ascents. There's 15 of them. We're not going to look at all 15. Now, they're called the Songs of Ascents because they're actually given that title in the Bible. Now, in your Bibles, I have no doubt that there's bold titles among many of the paragraphs throughout your scriptures. And all of those, for the most part, were put there much, much later, sometimes even by the publishers. Um, in contemporary world, right? So even the public, ESV publishers could have put the titles there. That is not the case with the Songs of Ascents. Above each one of these psalms, you'll see a Song of Ascent printed there. That is original to the Hebrew. Okay, that was given by the original writers. It was collected as really a songbook. Now it says of the ascents. What does that mean? Well, there's not a lot of instruction given, but here's what we think we know. Scholarship would tell us that the Songs of Ascents were the songbook used by the people of God on their way to corporate worship. So, if they lived in Jerusalem, the temple was up on the Temple Mount. And so they literally had to ascend up the steps to go to worship. But for most people who did not live in Jerusalem, the songs of ascent for them were about ascending up to the mountains of Jerusalem to go to the festivals and feasts, the gatherings of corporate worship, at least twice a year. And so these were songs that were sung by the people of God on the way anticipating what God would do, meeting them in a time of corporate worship. So those of you who have ever had, you ever heard of a camp high? or some kind of spiritual experience where God has really met you, right? Those of you who have been on uh, maybe a silent retreat with us, or you look back in your life and think, okay, this was a time when I was just meeting with the Lord in such a rich time. That, That was what it was for them, right? They would go at least twice a year to these feasts and festivals. So they're singing these songs, ascending up the mountains to Jerusalem, anticipating how God is going to meet them as His body. And so, from these psalms, from these songs of ascent, we're going to learn two things. The first is this: Why does it matter? Okay. Why does corporate ma- worship matter? Why do we need it? Why is it vital to our souls? And then, second: How does corporate worship, worshiping as God's gathered people, how does that fulfill that need? Okay. So, first: Why do we need corporate worship? Why do we need to participate? in the body, worshiping together? And second, how does corporate worship serve that need? Okay, so the first thing I want to look at real quickly. Why do we need it? I want you to look at the very first psalm on your sheet, Psalm 120. So think about it. This is a songbook. It's it's meant to be a, a, a songbook, 15 psalms, 15 songs of praise, anticipating corporate worship. And notice how the first song starts out. So if you think about this as a CD, right? or a record, right? You're setting the tone of what you're trying to get across. And let me read for you just a sampling of Psalm 120. Writer says, "Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshek, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak" They are for war. Now, if you know anything about the Psalter or the Psalms, you know that um, this kind of psalm should not surprise us being in there, right? It's, it's known as a psalm of lament. Notice the very first word I read, woe. I right? think about Jesus saying, woe to you, hypocrites. Right? He's saying, woe to me, right? It's a psalm of lament. He is sorrowful to the point of um, being just torn in two. Now, what makes it so unusual, though, is that this is the way that the Songs of Ascent start. (laughs) This is how we're going to start this record. With a lament. Why? Well, what is he lamenting? What do you notice? Where is he? He's not with the people of God. He is lonely. He is in a desolate place. He says he sojourns in Meshach, among the tents of Kedar. These were two desert tribes who were godless. In other words, he finds himself in exile, cut off from the people of God, sojourning, crying out, lamenting the fact that he's not with God's people and he wants nothing more to be with them again. That's how the songs of Ascents start. Why? Because it describes us so well. This is our experience too, men. Right? This is where we find ourselves. We're going to be honest, right? On this side of heaven, we are cut off. We find ourselves so often in exile. We've talked about that time and time again uh, in this study, particularly when we study the book of Daniel together. And so here we are, we can relate to this, that we feel this longing, that, that we live as Christian people among those who hate, and the word here in Hebrew is shalom. People who are not for the kingdom. People who want nothing more than to be divisive. That's where we find ourselves each and every day. I am for shalom, the psalmist says, but when I speak, they are for war. It begins with a need. That this psalmist recognizes that he needs to be with the people of God. Brothers, do you recognize that need in yourself? I have no doubt that you feel the pains of the sojourn. The question is, how do you try to medicate those pains? And you recognize that really deep down what you need, what we long for is to be with God's people. Because one day, every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be in heaven together, in perfect community, worshiping together. But now this is where we find ourselves. We long to be there. We long to be there. I think we don't feel this sometimes because of where we live. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, I've heard about it, but I certainly wasn't familiar with the sociologist. His name is Barry Schwartz. And he studied, um, basically, contemporary consumeristic culture. Okay? So, where we live now. And he recognized that there is such a thing as called the tyranny of choice. In other words, today... More than ever, we have more choices as consumers than we have ever had before. And what his research has recognized is this is actually not a good thing for us as a society. Go figure. That we are actually more unhappy now because of all these choices. That we actually feel paralyzed by the choices in front of us. You ever felt that way before? To the point where you feel like I've got to make the perfect choice because it's got to be out there. There There's so many and I feel a certain sense of loss or being let down when I finally make that choice and it doesn't meet all my expectation. We would be fools to think that doesn't impact the way we think about church, especially in Dallas, Texas, where there are so many different churches, choices, options right there for us. And so we are inundated with all of these different churches around us. We think, well, I've got to make the perfect choice or else I'm going to be let down, Right? I don't have the right preacher or right pastor. Or the songs aren't sung a certain way. And I think we begin to recognize that we we're, we have it wrong when you think about it that way. I'll never forget being in Morocco at the age of 18 with the, uh, worshiping with an underground church, right? This tiny little house church, worshiping in secret for fear of being caught. Do you think they were... Arguing very much about what kind of songs they sing, what kind of instruments they use—of course not. They don't have a choice. They don't have any other option. This is all they have, and they're just happy to be together. I'm saying they're perfect. I'm sure they wrestle the exact same mess that we do because they're sinners just like us. What I, I want us to wrestle this morning: how we think about corporate worship and why sometimes it's hard for us. Okay. So, if we have a need, a need to be together as God's people, then how does corporate worship of all things help us? I want you to look at Psalm 121. Psalm 121. Psalm 121, the psalmist says this, and you've probably heard this before if you've been around Christianity at all, if you've grown up in Dallas, maybe you've heard this verse before. He says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So again, these are called the songs of ascents, going up the mountains into the hills of Jerusalem, right? Anticipating being together as God's people for corporate worship. So what does the psalmist say? He says, I lift my eyes up where? To the hills. What is he talking about? He's talking about the hills of Jerusalem. He's talking about Mount Zion. He's talking about the Temple Mount. He's saying, I'm anticipating. I can't wait to get there. Why? Well, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You see, for the people of Israel, God's presence dwelled literally in the temple, there in the Holy of Holies. And so for them, going to worship together as His people meant they were going to be directly in the presence of God. And so here they are making their journey from wherever they're coming from, bringing all of their baggage both literally, but I mean also metaphorically, right? All of their wounds, all of that's been going on, and they're anticipating being helped by God himself. Why? Because they know he's present there. Okay, brothers, here's what I want to tell you, and it is so difficult for us to truly believe. But the Gospels tell us that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the Holy of Holies was split in two. Why is that significant? Well, no longer is his presence cut off by a curtain but now His presence is everywhere, particularly God's presence no longer dwells in a physical temple, but it dwells in a spiritual temple. What spiritual temple is that? It's a you and it's me. It's His church, capital C, it's His people. In other words, when we gather together as God's people, we have every confidence, the same confidence that the old people of the Old Testament had, Going to the temple, that God's presence would be there. We have the same confidence when we gather together as God's people now. Brothers, God is with us right here and right now, dwelling in you and me. Do you believe that? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think about that enough. Or as we anticipate a Sunday morning worshiping together, do we recognize that God is going to be present? God himself present with us, and anticipating what is he going to do? What will he do with us? How might he have his way with us? How will he help us? I lift my eyes to the hills. I lift my eyes towards Sunday morning, right? Where does my help come? So here's what I want to do. Very briefly, in just the next 10 minutes or so, I want to show you how. How does corporate worship meet our needs? Particularly, our spiritual need, this side of our of our sojourn, this side longing for heaven. How does corporate worship meet our need? Well, it gives us grace for our journey. It gives us grace for our journey. You ever wondered why it's called a worship service? You ever wondered that? Why why do we call it a worship service? And I think for a lot of people, you would assume, well, it's because that's we're we're going to serve. God to serve one another, right? We're showing up to serve Him with our singing, uh, with our listening, with our money, with our time. Uh, We're going to serve Him. But what I want you to see this morning is that it's the exact opposite. That originally, the idea of a worship service should be completely flipped in our hearts and minds. In the book of Common Prayer, it talks about a worship service as being an opportunity when we are being served as God's people. Particularly, see this in the book of Acts, Acts 6, chapter 4, as the deacons, for the first time, are being commissioned servants. We're told that they are being asked to serve the tables, right? To distribute the food so that the elders could serve the Word, As a pastor, I'm called to be a servant, to administer or to serve the word and the sacraments, communion and baptism. And so it's called a worship service, not because we show up to serve God, but because we show up to be served by God himself. That we are showing up so that God could serve us with his grace, that he could renew us. That he could equip us, that he could overwhelm us with the goodness of the gospel, so that we would be sent out again throughout the week, to do His work, only to gather once more on Sunday morning to be served again. Yes, do we serve? Of course we do. Do we serve downstairs in the nursery do we serve one another by? Sea? Of course we do. But all of worship is, and all of service is a response, first and foremost, to what God has already done for us. Right Jesus said, "I came." To serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many brothers. When we gather for worship on a Sunday morning, we are gathering to be served by the King of Kings. Just as the disciples were there in the upper room being served by their Savior who was about to die for them, we go to be served by Him. How humbling is that? And how does that change the way we think about coming to sing some songs and listen to a sermon, to be served by Christ himself? How does this happen? I'm going to give you, again, very briefly, just five examples. You have on your table a bulletin from this last Sunday. I recognize many of you worship with us here at Park City's Presbyterian Church. Some of you don't. Particularly, I'm going to say this now and I'll say it again, if you do not have a church home, we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings to worship with us. I'm not going to say that the way that we do things is perfect at all or the right way to do them. I just want to show you why, why we do the things that we do. So for those of you, a lot of you who worship with us, you might be familiar with a traditional worship service. Sometimes it's called a liturgical worship service. way, worship just means liturgy. Um... Others of you maybe grew up more like I did, little known fact, before I came to PCPC and became a Presbyterian pastor, I was part of the Acts 29 movement and part of the Village Church uh, and a church they planted up in Frisco, and we didn't have a liturgical service. And I led worship, not just with a guitar, don't tell anybody it was an electric guitar. I know, right? <laughs> Scary. So it was new in a lot of ways for me, too. In some ways, ways it wasn't new for me. Honestly, it's what I grew up with, remember, in the Lutheran Church. So it had a lot of baggage. That might describe some of you this morning. I want to show you why, why we do the things that we do. And I want to use the songs of a sense to do that. Our corporate worship always begins with a call to worship. In other words, it's just an invitation. I want you to look at Psalm 122 on your sheet. But first and foremost, we must recognize that worshiping together as God's people is a gracious invitation. It's something that we take for granted. But we should recognize we should never take it for granted because what is happening is the God of the universe has invited us to be together as his people because he's redeemed us by sending his son Jesus to die in our place and to rise again. That we who were once orphans have now been called sons and he's called us now to be together and has invited us to be together and to worship him, to be in his presence. It is no less Then the king of kings saying, hey, you peasant, you traitor, I'm inviting you to come and to be in my throne room, to come and bask in my glory, to come be with me. It's a gracious invitation. Hear these words, Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as to a creed for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The psalmist he's giving thanks, he's recognizing it is good to be invited to go into the house of the Lord. It's good to go to gather together as worshipers. And what I want you to see this morning is to have a call to worship, to have an invitation, recognizes this fact, that worship does not begin with us. Worship begins with Him condescending Himself down to us by grace coming to us and saying, You are mine. You are my Son. I sent my Son, Jesus, to die in your place, and now you are mine. And now I'm inviting you to be with me and to be with my people. And so all of worship then is just a gifted response. What do I mean by that? It's a response to God's grace in our life. It doesn't begin with us, it begins with Him coming to us. All of worship then is just a response. We see this, it's not in your sheep, but in Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. Blessed be The Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Psalm 124 recounts all the things that God did for the people of Israel to rescue them out of slavery, and it's a response to that gracious act that they are now worshiping God, giving thanks and praise to what He has done. That is the same way that we should think about our own worship. It's a response to the gospel. So our worship begins with a call and an invitation, but also part of our worship services on Sunday. Is a time when we corporately confess our sins. I want you to look. It's on your sheet. Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Again, I want you to imagine a band of people traveling together up to the mountains of Jerusalem on their way to the feasts and the festivals. And they're singing this psalm together. Psalm 130. Here's what they're singing. They're singing, Out of the depths, I cry out to you, O Lord. For where there is the Lord, there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. It's a beautiful confession and a beautiful reminder of how God meets us when we confess our sins together. It's a little tiny book. It's out of print now, but it's uh, well worth your time. You can find it online in a PDF version. Uh, John Stott's called Confess Your Sins. Very short talks about the need of confession and why it's important, vital to Christian life. But he actually outlines three different types of confession. The first is that we would confess between just us and God, that we need that in our life. We need to confess to God himself. But also recognize the second kind, that we should confess to one another. First and foremost, that if we've wronged someone, as Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, that we should confess our sin to them to ask for forgiveness. But the last kind, what I want to focus on this morning, is we need corporate confession, too. Why do we need it? Because we recognize we're not alone in this. That's why it's one of my favorite times in our worship services that we together recognize that we are all deeply needy, that we all sin. And so if you come worship with us, what you'll recognize is that we do so much as pastors up from the stage there's only a couple times, and for some of us, only one time that we come down. Why do we come down? We come down during corporate worship to recognize that as... Look, we're, yes, we're wearing a robe. By the way, I never thought I'd wear one of those. But yes, we're wearing a robe, but that, that's not to actually set us apart. It's actually to blot us out. We're just like you. We're all like one another. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. You see this here. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, nobody could stand if God counted our sins against us. So corporately come together, recognize we're all in this together. We're all sinful. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But not just for that. We corporately confess our sins because together we remind one another of the goodness of the gospel of grace. That we have all been given Christ. We see this in verse 7. Israel, or people of God, or church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him there is plentiful redemption. Not just do we confess our sins corporately, but we pray together as well. We pray corporately. Look at Psalm 132. You see here in Psalm 132, it's a prayer of intercession. The psalmist is praying that God would remember His covenant with David, that he would restore the Ark of the Covenant, the worship of his people, that the priests would be clothed in righteousness, verse 9. And then verse 10, that for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Who's the anointed one that would come from the servant David? The Messiah, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God, on behalf of all of your people, do not hide yourself from us, but Christ be with us. Christ, have mercy we are called as God's people not just to pray individually, but to pray together. Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening credited the Great Awakening to corporate prayer, corporate prayer. That when God's people came together corporately to pray together for a revival, that's exactly what happened. And so Edwards wrote a little treatise about it. I'm going to read it to you just because it's fun. This is a title. A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and Visible Union of God's People, and Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth Pursuant to Scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Time. That would never get past an editor today. <laughs> That's his title. That's his title. <laughs> the point of, of the little treatise is this. When God's people get together to pray together in unison, extraordinary things happen. No less than revival itself. Okay? Communion, community. We see this in Psalm 133. Look with me, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Who was Aaron? He was the high priest. In other words, here is the high priest gathering his people to worship, and when God's people dwell together, when brothers dwell in unity, it's like the oil of blessing that's been poured on him has been spilled out onto God's people. It is good for us to be together as God's people. Yes, with all our warts. Yes, with all our baggage. Yes, sometimes we don't like each other, but we need each other, and we see this so tangibly when we come together with corporate worship, specifically when we come together for communion, to be united together in Christ. right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Christianity means community in and through Jesus Christ. We experience that so tangibly when we worship together on Sunday mornings. And then lastly, lastly, we have a benediction. At the end of every service, we end with a benediction, a blessing. Look at verse uh, Psalm 134, verse 1. Recognizing that we in worship, we are blessing the Lord. As He serves us, we are responding to Him, serving us with the gospel, with our worship, lifting our hands to the holy place. And then we see this in verse 3. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. We are blessed, right? We are the ones. That's what a benediction is. It's a blessing, so as we are sent out after corporate worship on a Sunday morning, we are being blessed as we go throughout you know, the other six days of the week. We are being sent out to our neighborhoods, to our places of work, to our families, to our friends, to those who know Jesus, those who do not know Jesus, into this world that is desolate. We are being blessed. We are being sent to carry the gospel with us. Our corporate worship on Sunday mornings as God serves us with His grace He then calls us to then extend that grace in our world. And so our corporate worship actually shapes the way that we interact with the world seven days a week, not just on Sundays, but where we go from here. So here's what I want us to do. I want us now, as men, to have honest conversations about this at our tables. I realize it's a loaded topic. Let it be. Let it be. Be honest. Be honest. How have you thought about corporate worship in the past? Be honest about that. I'm throwing myself under the bus. Just like you, I have my own issues. We all do. And how do we get to a place we recognize being together as God's people to worship in is no less than being invited and ushered into his presence so that God could overwhelm us with his gospel of grace. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we thank you that your gracious invitation always stands. And though sometimes we are wayward, I think about my own life, constantly rejecting your church and your people and even the gospel itself. Lord, thank you that you um, never gave up and you still never give up, that you chase us down, you hunt us down with your relentless grace. May your relentless grace hunt us even this morning as we talk about our tables. Help us to be honest about these things and help us just like our Old Testament forefathers to have anticipation for Sunday morning to long to be together as God's people, to be ushered into your presence, that we might be together basking in the grace of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.